Why is the pattern of Scripture to consider the doctrine of God before considering the duty of man? Why is that? Why do we need to know certain things before we do certain things? I can think of several reasons. They all boil down to it is the knowledge of God that motivates our obedience. The knowledge of God brings a sense of trust that motivates obedience. I can entrust myself to this God. The knowledge of God brings a sense of responsibility that motivates obedience. I am accountable to this God. The knowledge of God brings a sense of gratitude that motivates obedience. I am grateful to this God. And the knowledge of God brings a sense of purpose that motivates obedience. This is why God has made me. This is the significance of my life before him. This is to be the direction of my life before him. And so I am inspired by this God. And so that's where Christians should be. That's where you and me should be after meditating on the amazing grace of God described in chapters 1 through 3. All that theology. We should now have a sense of trust and responsibility and gratitude and purpose so that now we're primed. And we're ready to hear instructions from God. We're ready to hear from Paul how this great, loving, faithful God who has called us to live for his glory wants us to live. We should be ready for that now. But there's one more problem. There's one more problem that Paul will address before moving on from right thinking to right living. And that's why this prayer is right here, breaking up the two parts of this letter. Friends, it is one thing. It is one thing to hear the doctrine of chapters 1 through 3. It's another to believe them. It is one thing to listen to these last five sermons, but it is another to actually believe them. Can I put it this way? It is one thing to have these doctrines in your head, It's another thing to have these doctrines in your heart. 
But if they are only in your head, there will be no sense of trust, no sense of responsibility, no sense of gratitude, no real sense of purpose, and you will have no true desire for obedience. Well, Paul knows that he can't, he is unable to get all this theology that he's given in chapters 1 through 3. He knows that he is not able to get that theology from the head's of the Ephesians into the hearts of the Ephesians. But he knows that God is able to do that. He knows that God can get all this theology from the heads of the Ephesians into the hearts of the Ephesians. And so Paul will pray before he gets into all the application of what he's taught them. Paul will pray that all this right thinking settles deeply in their hearts. He will pray that through the Holy Spirit, by faith, Christ will dwell in their hearts that they would know him. We'll read his prayer together, but first let's pray. Will you bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, by your Holy Spirit and through the preaching of your holy word, would you enlighten our minds, fill them with truth about you? Would you enlarge our hearts? Would you fill them with affection for you? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Ephesians chapter 3. If you're using one of our church Bibles, you're going to find that on page 918. Let's begin with Paul's introduction to his prayer. Before he actually prays, is in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3. He begins, For this reason... And when Paul says that, he's pointing back to all that doctrine of chapters 1 through 3. For all this, for this reason, I bow my knees, which is the actually uncommon posture of Paul's prayer here. It was more typical in that day to stand and to look up to heaven when you prayed. But Paul bows his knees in prayer before the Father, which is the way Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named that, and then Paul begins his actual prayer. John Stott has described this prayer as a staircase and actually, before even reading his commentary this week, I was thinking the same thing. When you read this prayer, you see that it, it, it climbs higher and higher with its desire for the Ephesians. And each step pushes up 
and forward from the one before. Each part of this prayer, it it builds on the part before. Let me give you an example. Not Paul's example here, but let me give you a, a simple example of a staircase sort of prayer. And this would be for an unbeliever. I pray that God would bring you to church and that God would put the gospel in the mouth of the preacher, that you would hear the gospel, that you would believe that you would be saved. So the top of the stairs is saved. But the prayer began with God getting you to church. It was like a staircase. Or this is the prayer that I've prayed most for my kids over and over and over again. God, would you please reveal yourself to, and then whichever one I'm praying for, read. God, would you please reveal yourself to read. That he would love you. I know if you do this, that he will do this. That he would love you and love your word and love your worship and love your people and serve you for your glory. These these building prayers that we pray. That's exactly what Paul does here. And each step look with me, is signaled by the word that. I use the same word in those examples I just gave you. In Greek, it's the word ina. So let me read this prayer and listen for it. Listen for the steps. And then we'll slow down and look at it more closely. Verse 16, here's the beginning of the prayer. That according to the riches of his glory... He may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that, and here's the top of the stairs, you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Three steps in Paul's petition. We could call them prayers for strength, for knowledge, and for fellowship. He prays for strength, then knowledge, then fellowship. So let's go back. Let's look at each of them. Let's begin with the first in verse 16 through the first part of verse 17. That, Paul begins, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Paul asks that the Ephesians would be given spiritual strength. God has to give it. 
This isn't something that they deserve. It's not something that they can earn. It's not something that they can work for. It must be, this strength must be given to them by God. This spiritual strength must be granted to them. He's not praying for physical strength. This is spiritual, unseen strength. And then he says this in verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, when you first look at that, it might sound like it did to me that Paul is praying for spiritual strength so that subsequently they would be indwelt by Christ. So God, give them spiritual strength, and then and only then, so that then Jesus will then come and dwell in these Ephesians. But that doesn't make sense. That's not true. We know that when you become a Christian, when you are born again, when you are born of God, we know that God comes and makes his dwelling within us. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit lives in you? John 14.23 talks about upon conversion how God will then come and make his home in us. Romans 8.9 says the same thing. So what we have is in verse 17, it is a parallel to verse 16. Paul is explaining what he said in verse 16. He's elaborating on what he said in verse 16. He's amplifying it. He's saying it in a different way. They're parallel. The inner being in verse 16 is used the same way as the heart in verse 17. And to be strengthened inwardly by the Spirit in verse 16, that is to be strengthened by Christ as is talked about in verse 17, and vice versa. So let's focus on verse 17. Because that is the way Paul chooses to amplify the strength that he's praying for. And if we look at verse 17, there are two key words. We need to make sure we know the meaning of both. The first one is dwell, and the second one is heart. Now, you see the word dwell a bunch of times in the New Testament in English, but there's actually two different words that are behind those English, that English word. There's two Greek words. One refers to a temporary resident. It was the word used back in chapter 2, verse 19, when it was talking about a stranger in a foreign land. So the first word for dwell is, I'm just here temporarily. The second word for dwell, the word that is used here, refers to a permanent resident. One commentator writes, the word selected here is a word made expressly to denote residence as against lodging, the abode of a master within his own home as against the turning aside for a night of the wayfarer who will be gone tomorrow. 
So this refers to the permanent, not going anywhere, residency of Christ. And where specifically? Where specifically is he dwelling here? In the heart. In the heart. When we think of the heart, we think of something different than the Ephesians would have thought of. I think typically when we talk about our heart, we mean our emotions. But it meant far more than this in the first century. The heart referred to the very core of your being. Proverbs 4.29 says, The heart is the well spring of life. And so your heart includes your emotions, but it includes your emotions and your thoughts, your thinking, your desires, your will, all of that. Everything in your life is flowing out of and from your heart. So, the strength that Paul is talking about here, the strength that Paul is praying for, is the strength that comes from the Spirit of Christ within us, ruling over every area of our life. It is Christ dwelling in our hearts so that all of our thoughts, so that all of our feelings, all of our emotion, all of our desires, all of our will, that it is all shaped by Christ. That's the strength that God has to grant. You can't come up with this on your own. It's a strength that God has to give to the Ephesians. It's a strength that God has to give to you. That Christ would dwell in the very core of your being so that the life that flows out of you is pleasing to Jesus. That's the first step of Paul's prayer. Let's move up to the next step. It builds on the first because here in the second step, we learn what specifically this strength is for. We find out why Paul is praying for that strength. This is in verses 17b through the first part of verse 19. He begins, that you being rooted and grounded in love, which is a description of us as Christians. Since we have been indwelt by the Spirit of Christ, we are rooted and grounded in love. We are like a tree with deep roots. We are like a building on a firm foundation. John Stock said of this verse, in both cases, the unseen cause of their stability will be the same, love. Love is to be the soil in which their life is to be rooted. Love is to be the fountain on which their life is built. Verse 18, 
So now that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to... So here's what the strength is for. Comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. What is this strength for? This strength is for knowing Christ. This power is that we would know the love of Christ. That we would, in relationship to Him, experience the love of Christ. And two things I'd like you to note here. Number one, I believe that Paul teaches that we will come to know the love of Christ better together than we would apart. Look at that small phrase. He prays that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. This is a comprehending that happens with all the saints of the love of Christ. And so we will come to know, you will come to know, the love of Christ better together. In covenant with other Christians, committed to other Christians, in family with other Christians, challenging other Christians, being challenged by other Christians, comforting them, them comforting you, talking about the things of God, going through difficulty and pain and suffering together, worshiping together, singing together, hearing preaching together, reading the word together, praying together in fellowship with one another. This is how you will best come to know the love of Christ is in his body. And then the second thing to note is that we will come to know the love of Christ forever. In other words, we will never stop coming to know the love of Christ. It's interesting. Paul prays that we would comprehend the dimensions of the love of Christ. The breadth, the length, the depth, the width, the height. He's describing these dimensions of the love of Christ. How wide is the love of Christ? How deep is it? How long is it? How high? He saves people from every tongue and tribe and nation. We've already learned in Ephesians that he has loved us long before we knew he loved us. We were told he loved us before the foundations of the earth. When we speak of the length of the love of Christ, how long will he love us? We've also been told in Ephesians he will love us forever into the ages to come. What is the depth of his love? He loved us when we were dead. 
We were dead in our sin. What is the height of his love? He has raised us up with Christ, seated at his right hand. It's infinite. It's infinite. We never will get to a point where we understand all there is to understand about the love of Christ. Even in heaven. Think about year two billion in heaven. We still will not know the breadth, the depth, the length of the love of Christ. Pastor James Boyce, he told a story about an underground prison that was once used during the Spanish Inquisition. And then it was eventually opened up by Napoleon's armies. And they found a cell in this prison with a body that was still chained to the wall, long dead. And beside the body on the wall, scratched into the wall, was a cross. And then around this cross were the Spanish words for height and depth and width, and length. Imagine that prisoner with this verse in mind. What sustained him? What kept him faithful? What helped him to endure? Thinking about what he could never think enough about. The love of Christ. Paul says it in verse 19. He prays that we would come to know the love of Christ that is unknowable. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Charles Hodge wrote that God should love the good, the righteous, the pure, the godly is what we can understand. But that the infinitely holy should love the unholy and give his son for their redemption is the wonder of all wonders. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Do you know the love of Christ? Remember what I said in the introduction to this sermon. There's a difference, isn't there? There is a difference between knowing of the love of Christ and knowing the love of Christ. The knowledge of him needs to get from your head and into your heart. It's not enough to know about Jesus. It's not enough to memorize verses. It's not enough to answer all the questions with the right answer. In fact, you can memorize all those verses, and you can know of all those truths. You could even teach them to other people, and still yourself not know the love of Jesus. And so you see, that's what Paul prays for. That's what he's praying for. 
He's about to apply all this theology. He's about to apply all this doctrine. He's about to put this heavy load of what it looks like to live the Christian life. And he knows the Ephesians will get nowhere unless they know the love of Christ. And so you see that's what he's praying for. He's got one more step. Here we come to the top of the staircase. Verse 19b. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. There's many times I come to verses in the Bible and I just sort of laugh to myself. Because I have no clue what it's talking about. It's great. It's good. It sounds amazing. But I just, I can't get my head around this. I mean, this is the, this is the kind of prayer that if you were praying with me, this is the kind of prayer where if we didn't have a verse for this, it would just sound silly. Like, you just think I'm making stuff up. And God, I pray that you would fill us with your fullness. It's this massive prayer. That God would fill us with his fullness. I think this is unhindered, unbroken, unfailing fellowship with God. This is unhindered communion and intimacy with God. That is Paul's goal for the Ephesians. Matthew Henry writes, There is an inexhaustible fullness of grace and mercy in God, which the prayers of all the saints could never draw dry. So Paul prays for them, and knowing what's coming up, what he's about to tell them, he prays that God would give them strength, strength that would empower them to know the love of Christ, strength and power to know the love of Christ, that they would be in unbroken, unhindered fellowship with him. And this, of course, if you're a Christian, that is what you want for yourself. If you're married, you want this for your spouse. If you've got kids, you want this for your kids. You want this for people that you love, for people that you care about. You want them to have this kind of fellowship with God, just like Paul does. And he begins by praying for strength, that they would know the love of Christ that they would be in fellowship and communion with him. In conclusion, let's consider Paul's own conclusion to his prayer. That's what we have in verses 20 through 21. This is how he, he wraps up his prayer. He's, he's done with his petition, what he's asking God to do in the Ephesians' hearts. And now he gives this sort of a doxology, like a short hymn of, of praise. 
And in these two verses at the end of this prayer, this great prayer, Paul is going to remind himself and remind his readers of who he is praying to, which, by the way, is a great thing to do when you pray. You pray and you're asking God to do these seemingly impossible things, if your prayers sound like my prayers at times. You're asking God to do something that just doesn't even seem possible. I hope you're audacious like that with your prayers. You should be. He's your father and he loves you and he cares about you. And most importantly in this context, he's the one who can actually do it. And so Paul, after, after praying this prayer, knowing that the, the Ephesians, are, they're dead in the water unless God continues to work in their hearts, he reminds himself and he reminds his readers of who he is praying to. Verse 20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Here's what Paul knows. He knows that chapters 4 through 6 are not going to be easy. And if you've read those chapters, you know what I'm talking about. The very first verse that introduces those last three chapters of Ephesians is this. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then he goes on to describe what it looks like to live a life that is worthy of the calling we have received. And none of it is easy. Much of it is seemingly impossible to be the kind of husband that Paul is going to describe, the kind of wife he describes, the kind of child, the kind of parent, the kind of employer, the kind of employee, the kind of church member, the kind of Christian. It's going to be very, very difficult. And Paul knows that the Ephesians are not going to be able to do it, but he knows that God is able. And so he prays. And he remembers that he is praying to the God who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. So you have what you ask God to do, and God is able to do even more than what you're asking for. And then there's things that you think, but maybe you're not bold enough to even ask for, and God is able to do even more than what you're thinking. So there are, there are things that God is able to do that, that aren't even on your map, that aren't even on your radar, that aren't even things that you're thinking about, let alone praying for. And God is able to do all of that according to the power that is at work within us. He reminds himself and his readers of that. And then verse 21, the close of his prayer, to him. And here is the ultimate purpose in all things. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. As I thought about this text... I thought about the, the book of Ephesians as a whole, like we talked about at the beginning. 
I was reminded that there is a, a picture here of the Christian life. The Christian life, it is doctrine, then duty. It is right thinking, and then it is right living. There is a way that you ought to live, and it will be the only way to live for your joy and for God's glory. But you will not be able to live that life, let alone be motivated to live that life, if you do not first know the love of Christ. And Christians, including myself, get this backwards all the time. I remember being a kid and learning that the word Bible was actually an acronym. And it stood for basic instructions before leaving earth. And a lot of people treat the Bible like that. As if the Bible was just this manual, just this manual for how you're supposed to live your life. Like the Bible is duty. This is what you need to do. There's certainly duty in there. We're about to read three chapters of duty. How we ought to live the Christian life. But what comes first? We must know the love of Christ. This is how you became a Christian, isn't it? You did something when you became a Christian. You believed. You repented of your sin and you put your faith in Christ. But why did you do that? Because God revealed himself to you. You understood something first. You came to know something. You came to believe something. And that was the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you're not a believer, this is what needs to happen in your life. You need to believe the gospel. You need to believe that Jesus Christ came and lived and suffered and died and rose from the dead in the place of sinners like you so that your sin could be paid for, so that you could be reconciled to a holy God. You must believe that. You must know that. And then you must prayerfully grow in your understanding of the depth of the love of Christ for you, the breadth, the width, the length, the dimensions of the love of Christ for you. You must come to know that which is unknowable. You must grow in your understanding of something that you will never fully understand, and that is the love of Christ for you. Christian, do you remember this? Do you remember that it is right thinking that leads to right living? Are you struggling to trust God? Are you struggling to have courage? Do you feel weak? Are you battling sin? What you primarily need is not a new tactic on how to address the sin in your life. There's a knowing problem. There's a thinking problem. And you need to come to a greater understanding of the gospel and a greater understanding 
of the love of Christ. And you need to pray that God would help you. And you need others to pray that God would help you. That God would take his truth. It would not just be something that you know of, but that it would be something that you believe as deeply as you could believe it. And so as Christians, we read God's word, we're committed to it. We study God's word, we're committed to it. We listen to the preaching of God's word, we're committed to it. And then we pray. We pray that God would help us to understand his word. We pray that God would open our eyes and open our hearts and open our ears so that they wouldn't just be words on a page but that they would be the most meaningful words in our life so that we would trust this God, feel accountable to this God, love this God, obey this God. When we take communion together every week, it's an outworking of this. We have come to believe this truth about our redemption through Jesus Christ. And so we're glad in this church to celebrate it every week. We're glad to remember it together every week. And so we come together as a family, and we all take this bread and this juice, which are symbols of the body and the blood of Jesus that was broken and spilled on our behalf. And we remember that together as his family that he has saved us. And we don't do it lightheartedly. We do it thoughtfully. We do it because Jesus did it first. Luke chapter 22, when the hour came, he reclined at table, the apostles with him, and he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So if you're visiting today, welcome. You are welcome to take communion with us if you are a baptized believer. If you're a Christian, you've turned from your sin and placed your faith in Christ. You're committed to him, committed to his body. Whether it's this local church or another one that preaches the same gospel that you heard here today. We have leaders up front who will serve you. If you'd come forward and take the bread and juice and then return to your seat and wait and then we'll take it together as a church family. Now let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for our time together this morning, and we pray that you would strengthen us. God, we pray that you would give us strength in our inner being. We pray that Christ would dwell in our hearts that he would rule over every area of our life. 
God, we pray this, that we would grow in our knowledge of your love for us. As we grow in the knowledge of your love for us, that our devotion to you would increase, that our affections for you would increase, and that we would enjoy a more intimate fellowship and communion with you, that you would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.